0: The Remedial Herstory Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the K 12 curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. Check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. The Remedial History Project is funded through grants and by listeners like you. Please head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial Herstory Project. YouTube can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. In particular, funds from patrons added from here on out will help us launch a Crash Course YouTube channel on women's history. We will be producing short 10-minute videos that educators can play in their classes telling women's history from era to era for both U.S. and world history. Let's make history together. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Wanna tell everyone's happening in today's episode. Today, we are gonna be talking about the intersections of women and social reform movements. Oh, all right. You ready? Yeah. Hello and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we are going to be asking the question why are the intersections between women and their social reform movements with an S important? And we're going to be joined on this episode by Dr. Deanna Beachley. Uh-huh. So, Brooke, I'm really excited about this topic because there are so many women in history whose names you hear and then you st- it, the more you look and the more you dig in history, you realize they're involved in, like, a million different movements. And I think it's so fascinating that – and I think the same is probably true today. You know, there's that phrase, like, if you need something done, ask a busy person, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, if you need advocacy done – talk to somebody who's already advocating for something else you know? <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> maybe oh just i like, see what you're doing over there can you just do the same thing over here that yeah sounds good <laughs> yeah so i think it's really important she's going to talk about some of the big names in different things but some women we haven't talked about yet jane adams are you familiar with her at all jane adams she related to a President Adams? (laughs) No. Uh, Well, maybe. I don't know. Distant, though, if if at all. But I don't think so. I think there's two Ds in her name, so no. Oh. Yeah, different spelling. Um, But anyway, she founded the Hull House in Chicago. It's a settlement house for immigrant women to get set up um very cool and she was definitely she's she's a progressive we're talking like turn of the century um 1900 ish um and so she's really interesting and then we're also going to talk about mary church terrell who um is an african-american woman who is a badass and involved in a million different things including heading black women's clubs and um but also like pretty much every reform movement of that time period. So um cool. So both of these women are incredible and have their hands in a lot of different things, a lot of And is issues. Jane Adams a white woman? She's white. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I'm really excited. And and those two, among others, um, Dr. Beachley is going to talk about with us today. But what's, you know, it's sort of that like intersection of these women and the and the work of social reform. Right. Right. Which is, you know, social reform is big and it includes a lot of different things. And some of them, like these two women, are involved in a lot of it. Yeah, it sounds that way, which is really exciting. And what time period were they from? So, this is like the Gilded Age, the okay. progressive era. Um, the, the progressive era sort of follows that or, or emerges as a result of the Gilded okay. Age. Um, gilded meaning covered in gold. I don't know why but, I always think of caged. Is that the oh. song? Gilded <laughs> <don't know>. cage. <laughs> Maybe. Um, but the, but Gilded, covered in gold. So it's, it's fake. It looks right. shiny. It looks good on the outside, but it's not really that great. And the progressives emerge to try to fix that. Very cool. Progressive era and the Gilded Age are topics that most high school history teachers teach about. So this episode's going to fit right in for a lot of people. That's great. Awesome. So let's have Dr. Deanna Beachley introduce herself. Awesome. Hi, my name is Deanna
1: Beachley, and I teach U.S. History and Women's Studies at the College of Southern Nevada. I am currently working on a biography of the Nevada suffragist and peace advocate, Anne Martin. I became interested in this topic when I first started teaching an American women's history class and started thinking about the ways in which women connected through reforms. I will be talking about the interconnections between American women in the suffrage movement and other reforms in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. At the same time, I will provide some discussion of the activities of different organizations and discuss the role that race played in these groups as well. The late 19th and early 20th centuries saw tremendous reform efforts for women and by women. Many organizations formed that focused on suffrage, labor, racial justice, as well as social reforms that led to the settlement houses, consumer reform, and municipal change. This work involved a number of women who graduated from college and wanted to do meaningful work to improve the lot of children and women in the United States. Work in one area often led to work and involvement in another, and as we'll see, some activist names keep out coming up again and again, like Jane Adams and Mary Church Terrell. Some of this work largely involved upper and middle class women, while others tried to cross lines of class and race with varying degrees of success. This cross-pollinization offers a great way to study the Gilded Age and Progressive Era where too often only one or two women or women-led reforms are discussed in the average textbook. I will focus my attention on a few such organizations and interconnections in this talk. For some activists, suffrage was a springboard for their involvement in other reforms. For others, activism in other areas led them to the suffrage cause. But not all suffragists got involved in other reforms, Alice Paul, for example, was singularly devoted to voting rights for women and nothing else. Carrie Chapman Catt waited until the 19th Amendment was ratified before embracing the cause of peace. But for others, as we shall see, were involved in numerous reform efforts. Some historians see this period as an emergence of gendered citizenship which developed out of existing gender norms and professionalizing newly college-educated women at a time when most women in the U.S. had no real voting power. They called this municipal housekeeping, and this was a twofold idea for advocates. One, that the welfare of a city or town directly influenced the welfare of their own homes. Therefore, in order to preserve the health and welfare of their own families, they must maintain the health and welfare of the wider public. As one woman activist noted in the Journal of Home Economics in 1915, it is because of women's growing sociability, the result of community life, which leads them into broader fields of human interest and human endeavor than those set by the confines of the home. Such a home implies not independence, but interdependence. You can see municipal housekeeping ideas prevalent in the social settlements, where garbage collection, sewage treatment, public parks, hygienic and sanitary conditions in public schools became part of their work, just as providing educational and other assistance to the immigrant populations they served. Jane Adams, well known for her work in the settlement houses, frequently wrote and spoke on these issues, which led to the city of Chicago to make changes providing garbage collections and sewer lines in the immigrant and poorer neighborhoods in the city. Many, but not all, women-led organizations embraced women's suffrage as a way to increase women's political power, but also women's ability to clean things up. Formed in 1890, the National American Woman Suffrage Association represented the largest number of American suffrage advocates. Many members of NAWSA were also involved in the Club Women's Movement. This group more fully embraced the municipal housekeeping idea and focused their efforts on state campaigns and later supported the federal amendment. There were about a million members in Nassau. The more radical National Women's Party, which began as the C- Congressional Committee of Nassau, then became the Independent Congressional Union, and finally the National Women's Party, drew its smaller membership about 25,000, from younger college graduates and those involved in the settlement houses or college equal franchise societies. The National Women's Party was more focused on the constitutional amendment, and after the amendment was passed, they focused on the Equal Rights Amendment. Members of the National Women's Party pointed out the need for full citizenship and believed that the federal amendment was more important than prolonged and protracted state-by-state fights. They also looked at the unfair issue that for Western women who could vote, if they moved to a state without woman suffrage, they had to give up their voting rights. Justice and fairness was part of their regular language in their speeches and publications. College seemed to be a place where women first came into contact with like-minded women and forged their first alliances, such as the College Equal Suffrage League. These college leagues, established around the country starting in 1900, sponsored meetings and introduced women's suffrage to students. They held debates to encourage discussion and distributed suffrage literature as well. The local chapters often got involved in state suffrage referendums as well. They became affiliated with NAWSA in 1908, but some members left to support the National Women's Party as they believed NASA's ideas and approach was outdated and wouldn't work for a modern audience. Due to prevalent racism at the time, and the often deliberate exclusion of black women from the mainstream, aka white suffrage movement, black women formed their own ways to get involved, either through the National Association of Colored Women or from their own local associations, such as the Alpha Suffrage Club, which Ida B. Wells uh, put together in Chicago, or the Equal Suffrage League that was organized um, by Sarah Garnett in the late 1880s in Brooklyn, New York. Black women believed that the vote would protect them as workers, allow them to improve education for their children and themselves, and challenge Black men's disenfranchisement. By 1906, suffrage work continued, as did successful efforts to recruit new em- efforts. So this is the um, Equal Suffrage League in New York. Hester Jeffrey worked in Upper New York in, in Rochester to organize the Susan B. Anthony Club for Colored Women in 1902, but both of these organizations found that they had difficulties in developing sustained connections with white suffragists. Now while this focuses on New York, there were other states where it had similar sorts of experiences as well. The late 19th century saw the emergence of the settlement houses, starting with Jane Adams and Ellen Gates Starr in Hull House in 1889. Adams was inspired by the work in the social settlements she visited while traveling in London. The London settlements responded to problems created by urbanization, industrialization, and immigrations all issues America faced as well. By 1900, the U.S. had over 100 settlement houses, providing essential services to immigrants in the areas they were located. Many of the young women who lived and worked in the settlement houses also became active in the suffrage movement. Because the mainstream settlement house movement focused more exclusively on helping the immigrant population Black activists created a parallel movement to help African Americans who recently migrated from the South to northern cities. Very few mainstream settlement houses reached out to African Americans, or they ended up establishing separate Black branches. But the need was so great that African Americans established their own settlement houses, often re- receiving the same kinds of services as in the mainstream settlement houses. The Black women who formed these settlement houses often relied on white donors and reformers, and developed non-confrontational strategies to provide essential services while not antagonizing the funds. The leadership often stemmed directly from membership in the National Association of Colored Women. So let's talk a little bit about these women's clubs. The General Federation of Women's Clubs and the National Association of Colored Women represented hundreds of thousands of middle and upper class women concerned with community improvement, and that's at the local, state, and national level. By 1910, the General Federation of Women's Clubs had over one million members in affiliated clubs in the local and state levels. They ended up supporting women's suffrage in 1914. Again, due to prevalent racism at the time, Black women formed their own association in 1896 with the creation of the National Association of Colored Women, headed for some years by Mary Church Terrell this organization represented about 50,000 members and like the general federation had affiliated clubs in local and state levels the national association supported women's suffrage earlier than their white counterparts in 1912 they also protested racial violence and organized food drives created settlement houses for black women and children and started suffrage clubs and created and submitted petitions and volunteered in local and state campaigns. Their motto, lifting as we climb, espoused personal comportment as a weapon against those who believed black women lacked virtue, that somehow they lacked morals and characters, something their white counterparts did n- not have to worry about. As black activist Fannie Barry O'Williams put it, I believe that colored women are just as strong and just as weak as any other women with like education, training, and environment. Another avenue that brought women into suffrage was through labor, through organizations, especially such as the Women's Trade Union League. The Trade Union League is an interesting study of feminism and class consciousness that emerged in 1903, the WTUL was a coalition of female trade unionists, settlement house residents, and social reformers. Membership in the trade union league consisted of women workers and their allies, mostly middle and upper class women who were sympathetic to the general principles of the labor movement, particularly the special problems of the female worker. The constitution of this organization mandated that allies not dominate the group and and avoid imposing imposing middle-class values on those they assisted. This was frequently a, a criticism of women's organizations is that, you know, these middle-class women were imposing their values on people they were trying to assist. The League's goals were to improve the situation of female workers through organizing them into labor unions, lobbying for labor legislation to control hours and work conditions, and educating the female worker labor union men, and others of the special problems of women workers and the value of organization and legislation to help them. The League based their actions on two seemingly contradictory premises. One, that women should have the same political, legal, educational, and economic rights as men. Two, that due to women's reproductive and maternal roles, women were fundamentally, physically, psychologically, and intellectually different from men. Suffrage leaders began to reach out in small ways to working-class women because they recognized that working-class men had the vote and it made sense to have them as friends and not enemies of the suffrage cause. Women workers were drawn into the suffrage movement since they thought that the vote would help them improve their working conditions. Margaret Dreyer-Robbins who was the wealthy president of the Women's Trade Union League, was active in the suffrage movement, and she acted as a liaison between the women's movement and the working class. The Trade Union League added a a suffrage department in 1908. While they had some success in this area, they had less luck in convincing male unionists that working women were not a threat to them. The AFL did not adapt its tactics meetings to accommodate them as organizers, and the level of tension between the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, and the Women's Trade Union League led the league to shift its focus to a legislative agenda supporting legislation for workplace safety and sanitation, limitation on the hours that women worked, advocating for an eight-hour day, as well as a prohibition against night work for women. And that all happened under Robin's leadership, we also find that um, the Women's Trade Union League also was actively engaged in supporting strikes that garment workers did in 1909. That uprising of the 20,000 saw members of the Women's Trade Union League on the picket lines right alongside the young garment workers. After the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire in the Mart in March of 1911 the Women's Trade Union League took part in a four-year investigation that ultimately helped establish new industrial safety regulations led by Lillian Wald. Like the Women's Trade Union League, the National Consumers League, led by Florence Kelly, who was a suffrage activist, the Consumers League also tried to reach out across class lines, but did not work with labor unions in consumer campaigns to improve wages and working conditions. Florence Kelly um, endorsed women's suffrage, particularly in how it would help working women. In addition to consumer campaigns against fraudulent marketing of food, they advocated for better wages and working conditions for food workers. But like the Women's Trade Union League, they also ended up moving towards a more legislative agenda, which also included suffrage. But what about civil rights? We see that during the early 20th century, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, was formed in 1909 as an association of concerned citizens to fight and correct injustices for African Americans. They fought for guaranteed citizenship rights, equal protection under the law, and voting rights as ways to obtain these rights social workers, women in the settlement houses, and women's clubs played an integral part in the development of the NAACP, but their contributions are usually not known. A mob lynching and race riot near Springfield, Illinois in 1908 provided the impetus for action. Mary White Ovington, settlement house worker in New York, wrote to a reporter who had written Um, about this lynching and called for citizens to come to the aid of the African-Americans. Sixty people signed the call issued by journalist and activist Oswald Garrison Villard in 1909, including two black women and 17 white women who signed this call. The two black women were Mary Church Terrell and Ida B. Wells. Of the white women who signed, that included Jane Addams The call led to a conference at the Henry Street Settlement House in New York City, where 300 people attended, including those who signed the call. The end result was the formation of the National Negro Committee, renamed the NAACP in 1910. Settlement House workers, social workers, remained heavily involved with the NAACP. They served on the national board and provided financial and political support. It is in this organization we can see the strongest interconnections. The women who signed the call shared organizational membership, social issue involvement, as well as personal relationships and shared networks. The women who signed the call and helped organize the NAACP were long-term activists well-known for their work. They used their interpersonal contacts and organizational skills to promote and educate and help the NAACP become successful. 17 of those who signed the call were involved in the suffrage movement, 14 in the labor movement, 10 were involved in the settlement houses, 9 were involved in civil rights groups, 8 worked in women's clubs, Sevens worked with the Women's Trade Union League, with other connections um, with the Consumers League, the National Child Labor Committee, and Socialism. So we can see all that kind of interconnection, right? But suffrage seemed to be the largest draw for many of them. Some women's activists also became involved with the peace movement especially as events rapidly deteriorated in Europe in 1914 with the start of World War I. The Women's Peace Party was formally established in 1950 and became the, the American representative of the international organization known as the International Committee of Women for Permanent Peace, which changed its name to the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. American suffrage activists involved were involved in the creation and formation of the Women's Peace Party and the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Jane Adams joined in. Her peace advocacy was not new in 1915. She spoke and wrote frequently about the interrelationship between the um, desire for international peace domestic humanitarian reform, and women's right to vote as all being kind of connected together. Adams and other social settlement workers such as Grace Adap, Abbott, Alice Hamilton, and trade unionist Lenora O'Reilly attended the 1915 International Congress of Women in The Hague. And again in 1919, there was another international meeting after the war ended, and Mary Church Terrell attended as well. Sometimes women's peace advocates paid the price for their pacifism. Jane Adams did. Her public reputation went from outstanding to pariah after her July 9th address at Carnegie Hall, the revolt against war. She had a largely unscathed reputation until this point, until she got involved in global peace activism as a woman in an issue that had previously been dominated by men. The Women's Peace Party and the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, her activity there, subjected her to public ridicule and almost demonization. She became a pariah. Okay, um, we can see Jane Addams getting involved in peace issues in 1907 when she attended the peace conference, Congress, and spoke presenting as part of a larger peace conference One organized organized and attended primarily by men. But when the Women's Peace Party and the Women's International League was formed, they were seen as having ideas that were not um, viable. They were seen as weak and silly. It was okay for women to get involved in social reforms that did not directly impact white men. But helping victims, helping children was one thing, but they transgressed when they entered into the uh, peace advocacy reform. But that didn't stop the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, nor did it stop Jane Addams' involvement. She remained active in the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom until her death in 1935. One thing that's interesting about the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom is that they opened membership to African-American women in 1915. For Black activists, peace and freedom meant much more than ending war and ensuring civil liberties were granted to all humankind by law as legislative act. They believed that race matters were essential to domestic peace. There were limitations, though, in those early years as African-American women were often excluded from activities in local chapters, and frequently Mary Church Terrell, who was involved, found that she was the only black woman present on the stage or in the attendees. This would change in the 1930s when the organization shifted membership, recruitment, and goals and began to make racial issues more central to their agenda, such as anti-lynching. So hopefully, what, what we can understand from what I've just shared is that the 19th, late 19th and early 20th centuries offered American women ample opportunities for activism and personal growth. And as we have seen, um, activism in one area often led to activism in other areas as well. Causes like women's suffrage either led women to other activities or other activities led them to suffrage. We can also see that groups like the Women's Trade Union League, the National Consumers League, the NAACP, brought together a lot of women, just like in the suffrage movement, who were like-minded, who wanted to make and improve some conditions for women and children throughout the United States. Thank you.
0: This podcast is sponsored by our patrons. Patrons get access to behind the scenes, regular RHP gear, bonus episodes, insights into our research, lesson plans before everybody else, and more. Brooke, read off these awesome people. Thank you to Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Kent, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, and Katya. Woohoo! Do you know what is so awesome about this particular group of people? No, what? Very few of them are actually educators. These are badass people who care so much about equitable and inclusive education that they are willing to put their money where their mouth is. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, so cool. You too can become a patron of the Remedial Herstory Project by heading over to www.patreon.com and becoming a sponsor of the Remedial Herstory Project for just $5 a month. That's it. That's one latte. I mean it's it's one of something, but it's cheap and you get all that stuff. All that stuff. You too can give up one latte for thousands of children and women. You could also buy condoms for more than that. <laughs> <laughs> you could produce you could produce You could reduce reproduction <laughs> for less than that. Uh. Brooke, most importantly, instead of lamenting that women's history isn't being taught in high school or that they didn't know these women, these people are putting their money where their mouth is and they are getting it into the curriculum by funding us. It's awesome. And they believe women's stories are important. Yes. Thank you. Duh. Thanks, patrons. We love you. We do love you. Dr. Beachley, thank you so much for your time and your energy. This is like such an important topic and I learned so much listening to you. So thank you for being here and for joining us.
1: Well, thank you so much for for the kind invitation to share this information with you and your listeners.
0: It's so important and most, a lot of our listeners are public teachers, high school teachers and middle school teachers. And so I'm just curious where you think they could go to, you know, where would they put this in their classes? Where do you see this as fitting best?
1: Okay, it it seems to me the, the best place for this to be would be any discussion about social reform. So thematically, it would fit with social reform um, and it would be a really great, Thing to um, draw some comparisons between like women in the antebellum reform movement and the early 20th century, or women involved in the early 20th century with women involved in reforms in the 1960s. I think either either of those comparisons or all three of those would be make for a really fascinating discussion about women's roles in reform. Hmm. Um, Obviously, it would fit really well with the progressive, any discussion about the progressives, just in general, social reform, I think that would be a really great fit.
0: I hadn't really thought about that sort of like comparisons that could be drawn between, um, you know, antebellum America and all the work that abolitionists and women were doing to try to end slavery um, and the ways in which this is just sort of the next iteration of that. And then, of course, the 60s with all the labor reform that's going on that women are involved in, that's really, really special. So are there any um, primary sources or secondary sources that you feel like would be good resources for educators to, to teach this to students?
1: Um, right now, in terms of secondary literature, there are some amazing biographies of some of the women that I, I talked about in the thing. There's a new biography of, of Mary Church Terrell, for example, there are several biographies of Jane Adams, Ida B. Wells, there are th- at least three biographies of Ida B. Wells. So there's that kind of thing that that could be u- useful, right, for just general looking at an individual and the arc of their reform careers, because both Mary Church Terrell and Jane Adams were lifelong reformers. The In terms of of primary sources, there are so many accessible and available speeches and articles that um, many of the women reformers in the early late nineteenth early twentieth century did that are so um, that are readily found. Um, when I was putting together a, a, a new class, for example, I was trying to find a number of speeches and things like that. And I was so amazed by how many sources I was able to find. Um, there are speeches by Mary Church Terrell that you can find. Um, Jane Adams' writings are ec- readily accessible beyond sort of her, her books that she published, like the, the 20 Years at Hull House, for example. And sometimes you can find it through the organization itself like the, the National Consumers League, or um, if you're looking at suffrage, there's a wide array of suffrage documents that are available now as well, thanks in part to awesome digitization of, of resources and the fact that last year was the, the centennial, right. Right? right? And so suddenly, this huge array of materials became available, mm-hmm. and that's really awesome. The Library of Congress is a great resource. Um, The National Archives is also a really good resource as well. And often they have like a document with a lesson plan attached to it. And uh, so you can find some resources that way as well.
0: I think what's so special about what you've shared with everybody is you've given them names beyond some of the big names that might help them find other people that were involved in this work so that you don't have some of the heroification or the oversimplification of women's history, right? It's not just Jane Addams who's doing this work, but it's lots of women. And um, and so now they have, they have names for those women and, and then can find those primary sources Um, through the sites that you've mentioned, and even just Googling, you know, Jane, you know, other people, Mary Church Terrell, primary sources, right?
1: Yeah. And that's, that's the beauty of, you know, having the internet and a lot of these sources more widely accessible now is that you can do that pretty easily and find such great things. Like for example, the quote that I gave at the beginning of the talk on um, near the beginning about municipal housekeeping If you Google municipal housekeeping, that article will come up where I drew the quote from, and it was um, by a woman, and I can find her name here, um, that she worked in Cleveland. Yeah, Mildred Chadsey is her name, C-H-A-D-S-E-Y, municipal housekeeping. And she was the Cleveland's first housing commissioner. And founded the Cleveland Bureau of Sanitation, hmm. and it's like, oh, I'd really like to find out more about her and her work. And um, anyway, yeah, I, I was I was find, I was discovering new names and things as I was going to, pre- prepping for the talk. So,
0: oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time and for your energy in all of this. I've learned so much and I'm hopeful that this will mean more people are teaching about women in these social reform movements.
1: Absolutely. I hope so as well. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.